Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. Amen. Thanks, Mike, and thanks uh, for everybody for joining us this morning. It's great to be together in the building today, and I just want to welcome you if you're at home, if you're a guest or a friend or a visitor or you're part of this church. It's so good to be together. And it's my great joy this morning to share as part of our new mini-series, which we've called Red Letter Days, which we trust will be a vital focus as we begin our regatherings. And my title this morning, I have a title and a subtitle. The title is Measuring the Church, and the subtitle, or the bit in brackets after it, is Love Tsunami. Love Tsunami. So, last week, uh, Chris did a brilliant introduction. If you've got Bibles, if you just turn to Revelation 1, and uh, Chris uh, introduced the letters that are in Revelation 2 and 3, which is where Jesus appears to the aging and probably the last surviving of the 12 original apostles, Apostle John, the disciple that Jesus loved, the one to whom he entrusted his mother Mary just before his death, And Jesus appears to John and dictates letters to seven churches, which are described as the seven gold lampstands in Asia, in Roman Asia, which is modern-day Turkey. And, uh, of course, those letters are are a prelude to a great prophetic message which concerns the trials and the tribulations and the challenges that the churches and the church at large are and will face But Jesus, in this message, is assuring them of his total victory. But first, he, in the letters, is deeply concerned that each church is in the best shape possible for what lies ahead. And he is concerned, therefore he encourages and he strengthens and he corrects and he adjusts. And if you just look at chapters 2 and 3... Uh, I I handily have them literally on these two facing pages, the whole of the two chapters. And it is awash with red letters, the words of Jesus. And as we look through the letters, we see in a nutshell that the first church, Ephesus, is is in great danger. And then comes a church with a good report, Smyrna. Then there's three with mixed reports, although one of them only just... Then there's another good report, and then at the end is another church that appears to be in great danger, and we'll come on to those things in just a moment. But each letter ends with this refrain, he who has an ear to hear should listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And therefore, we we understand that the messages in these specific individual letters are relevant to all the churches, and I believe they're relevant Uh, just as much now as they were then. Revelation 1 verse 3 promises great blessing for the reading and studying of the book of Revelation. And that is true at any time, but especially at this time whilst we're paused and considering things before we press, I say before we press forward again, hopefully we won't press fast forward again, but whilst we're paused considering what kind of church Jesus is looking for, these letters are especially helpful. They help us to know how we can properly evaluate or assess or measure 
things we're doing. And it has nothing to do with size or quantity. It means knowing what matters most to Jesus and how he measures things. And so I want to make a few general comments from chapters 2 and 3. And I'll, I'll assume for the purpose of, the, of this that you, you are familiar with these chapters. Make a few general comments about Jesus and his church. And then I want us to look at the first letter in which is one of the most shocking things in the New Testament. So first of all, what does what do these first two, these, these two chapters, chapters two and three, what do they tell us about Jesus and his church? I want to say, first of all, they tell us that Jesus really loves his church more than we could ever imagine. He poured out his blood to create her. He poured out his heart to commission her. And he's poured out his spirit to empower her. He's given everything for his church. And as he promised in Matthew 16 when he first spoke of the church, he is building his church. And we're his body filled with his life and we're his army advancing his purpose and we're his house in which he dwells by his spirit. And we are, as we've just been singing, his bride being prepared for his return and so much more. We are the objects of his love and his affection. And he's the master craftsman. He is the chief apostle. He is the great architect of his church. And as Revelation 3 and verse 19 tells us, if he wants to change anything in his church, it's because he loves us. Jesus really loves his church. And then we also discover from uh, Revelation 2 and 3, and in fact the, the opening verse of Revelation chapter 2, and Mike referred to this right at the beginning, that Jesus walks amongst his church. He walks. He doesn't run. He doesn't rush around his church. He walks amongst his church, taking time, looking at everything. He sees and knows all that happens. He sees inside. He looks at the heart. He's never fooled by external things. And you know, when we're called to give an account, when the elders of the church are called to give an account, he'll already know. And he cares deeply about his church, wherever his church is expressed. I find it interesting that of these seven letters to the seven churches, only two of those churches are otherwise known to us. The church in Ephesus, because there's a lot about that one. And, and by brief mention at the end of Colossians, the church in Laodicea. But the other five, if it weren't for these letters, would be unknown to us. But Jesus knows all about them. And he has something to say about all of his church. And he has something to say about us. And he walks amongst us in Stony Stanton here, or in Market Harbour, in northwest Leicestershire, in Tamworth. He's going to walk amongst us in Royal Leamington Spa. He walks amongst us in our life groups. He walks amongst us when two or three are gathered. And when two or three are gathered, it's, he, he is there, but it's not just to bless us and heal us and answer our prayers. He's taking a look. He's assessing. He's evaluating. He's measuring. Because he cares deeply about how we are 
and how we represent him. It really matters. And then we discover in these couple of chapters that Jesus loves things and he hates things. And he's never lukewarm. He's never sitting on the fence. And when we go through the letters, we actually find that the things he commends and the things he's not happy with, it kind of actually boils down to a fairly few things that recur. He loves passion. He loves purity. He loves zeal. He loves hard work. He loves perseverance. He loves authenticity. He loves endurance. He loves an intolerance of evil. And he hates backsliding and lukewarmness and false teachers and false apostles and false doctrines and idolatry and immorality and compromise and self-deception. And that's why by his spirit we must listen to what he's saying to the churches because he's, he's continually speaking to us to help us to measure up. Deborah and I love a program called Grand Designs. Hands up in the room if you enjoy Grand Designs. Oh, not many of you, Grand Designs. It's a, it's a great program about house building. And, and the, uh, the man that hosts the program, Kevin McLeod, he always sums up at the end of the show with a little a kind of comment about the house and some wise words. And we watched one recently, and this is what he said at the end of the episode. And this house had been built by a couple who were great friends with the architect. The architect had been a long, lifelong friend of this couple. And, and together they'd been talking about this house. They'd been planning it for years and years and years. And Kevin McLeod was particularly interested in the fact that the clients didn't want to change anything about the design of the house and the way the architect had, had intended it to be. And this is what he said at the end of it all, speaking purely in natural terms, but, but something landed with me. He says, the architect knows and feels every detail of the building, for he has conceived it and lived and breathed it, so that if anything is done that compromises what he planned and intended, it breaks his heart. Jesus loves things, he hates things, he is the great architect, he is the chief apostle, and another thing I want to say from these two chapters is that only one measure matters. Only one plumb line is used. Only one opinion counts. Only one measuring stick is accurate. It is what Jesus thinks that matters. Chris mentioned this last week, but for example, we find in these letters that Smyrna think they're poor, but Jesus declares they're rich. Meanwhile, Laodicea think they're rich and Jesus declares they're poor. And Sardis has a reputation for being alive, but Jesus knows they're dead. Only his opinion matters. Only one measure matters. And it is, as Ephesians describes it, the measure of Christ. And therefore, church, we are not to spend a moment measuring or comparing ourselves against others. Against Hillsong or against Elevation Church or against the local Anglican Church or a Methodist Church or a Baptist Church or a church in Leicester or, or our friends in Cardiff or in Coventry or in Leicester or, or in Oldham or in Southport or anywhere. We are measured 
against Christ who loves us and is for us and is giving his gifts and pouring his fullness into the church, into his church, so that we're built up and we come up to his measure in all areas, in our zeal, in our brotherly love, in our sound teaching, in our compassion, in our grace. Only one measure matters. And the, the last thing I want to take just generally from these two chapters is this, that every church exists to give light to the world. We are described as his lampstands on several occasions. And the purpose of a lampstand is purely to show forth light. We're here to show forth the light of Christ. He wants his churches everywhere to burn brightly as beacons of hope to everyone within their reach. To act as lighthouses saving people from shipwreck and drowning. The church is here and we know it and we say it frequently for his mission and his purpose. He's poured out his spirit not primarily for our meetings but to make us witnesses. And as much as we love our fellowship together, it must never overshadow our mission to those around us. And so in the context of those things, I'd like you to turn, if you have Bibles in front of you, the words will be on a screen in a moment, to the first letter written to the Ephesians. Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. And this is... This is, I can't remember which translation this is actually, but it's good. (laughs) Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your works, your labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. So here is the first letter, and as Chris described last week, they go around in, a kind of in, in the route you'd have taken if you'd have been traveling between those towns, those cities. And this is the leading city. It's the, it's the largest city in the region. Its population was probably around 250,000 at the time. It was a major trading center. In Ephesus was the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And within that city is the New Testament church that we probably know the most about, Ephesus. It's in Ephesus in Acts 18, 
that Apollos first preaches Christ. And then he meets Priscilla and Aquila, and they uh, help to establish him a little bit more certainly in, in his gospel. And then it's in Ephesus that Paul meets 12 disciples and straightens out their foundations. And it's in Ephesus that Paul stays for three years, two or three years, preaching the kingdom. And this is all in Acts 19 and 20 now, in performing extraordinary miracles. Handkerchiefs that healed the sick or, or um, uh, his sweat, sweatbands or whatever they were. It's the elders of Ephesus that meet with Paul on the beach in Acts chapter 20, where he encourages them and he warns them against false teachers and, and uh, deviant doctrines and, 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 and um, vicious wolves. It's to Ephesus that he writes his epic epistle in which he shares the most incredible revelation and truth, giving them, giving them so much to work with. It's to Ephesus, a few years later, that he sends Timothy. That's where Timothy is when Paul writes his first letter to Timothy. And he sends Timothy to deal with false doctrines and, and to appoint more elders, presumably because the church continues to grow. And tradition has it that it's to Ephesus that after Mary, Jesus' mother, died, John himself, the disciple that Jesus loved, the author of the book of Revelation, the one who's having this vision, it's to Ephesus, tradition says that John went and based himself in the latter years of his life. Ephesus. But now, some years later, the chief apostle brings his own evaluation. I know your works, your labor, your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil, and you've tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not not and have found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Ephesus, of all the churches, who got right so much that others got wrong. Had so much going for them. Sound doctrine, hard work, testing ministry, endurance in the midst of idolatry and immorality in that city. So much to commend. And yet, one accusation delivered in one short sentence. They have abandoned their first love. The word he uses, it means to send away or to let go, to release, to permit to depart. And and love there is agape. And it matters so much that the very survival of the church depends on it. If they don't change, Jesus will remove the lampstand, close them down, extinguish their fading light, their diminishing testimony. You know, in the epistle... Paul writes to them, he actually commends them for their love. Chapter 1, verse 15. And they've obviously taken on board his warnings about false doctrines and false apostles and savage wolves. But in the process, they've abandoned their first, fresh, intense love. And I believe that to be their love for God, their love for one another, and their love for the lost in their city. 
Somebody said this, heresy hunting had killed love and orthodoxy had been achieved at the price of fellowship. This great church had put aside their devotion to Jesus, their brotherly love for one another, and their compassion for the lost, and now are in the greatest danger of everybody. As Jesus says, put it right, or I'll close it down. It bears out what we know from elsewhere in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 13 says, the gifts of the Spirit are nothing without love. In John 13, 5, he says, no one, no one will know you, my disciples, unless you love one another. And when he's asked, when Jesus is asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest of all the commandments is to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Without love, a church ceases to represent Jesus. And when he measures his church, he wants to see Labor and love, purity and passion, activity and agape, doctrine and devotion, great order and great overflow. And when the architect looked at Ephesus, it broke his heart. Of the seven letters, it's the first church is Ephesus, which has become loveless. Jesus threatens to put out their light. The last church, Laodicea, has become lukewarm, and Jesus threatens to spit them out of his mouth. How about that? The only two churches we knew anything about are in the greatest danger. Because when Jesus measures a church, its profile and its reputation are irrelevant. It's love and passion that are right at the top of his list. Can you imagine what John thought as he's, as he's seeing this vision of Jesus, hearing Jesus? When, 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 when Jesus says, write down these, let, these words to seven churches, and the first, the first on the list is Ephesus, a place where John had invested years of his time. Can you imagine what Paul would have thought if he'd still been alive? But Jesus wasn't evaluating the church back then. He's evaluating the church here and now. And things had slipped because every generation must build on what's been started. A great start isn't enough by itself. We must continue well and finish brilliantly. And thankfully, there's a remedy. Jesus says they are to remember. And that the way he says that, it means to keep remembering, keep recalling, keep thinking about what you did at first. And repent, which means make a decisive break and sort things out and return to your first love. Now, why am I saying all this? You're probably wondering. Is it because I think we are loveless or lukewarm? Not at all. I thank God for the hallmark of love and warmth and zeal amongst us. But I think this letter is really relevant and really matters to us at this time for a few reasons. And the first is this. I think Jesus is simplifying things for us. And in the next season, simplicity must be our watchword. It's not that other things 
uh, don't matter, but what matters most, it seems, is our love for him and our love for one another and our love for the world and the people he's put us alongside. And we must not complicate things. We're to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. James calls it the royal law, the law of the kingdom. Jesus is making it simple because we're not all skilled theologians. In fact, I don't think any of us are. And we may not all be seasoned prayer warriors. We may not feel we're all huge load bearers, but we can all show great love. It's not complicated to be a church that pleases Jesus and measures up to his mark. This is totally doable. And second, because we now have the greatest ever opportunity to express love to others. In this new season, it will be our love for God and our love for one another and especially our love for our neighbours, our friends and our colleagues that will have the greatest impact. Love, as Chris said last week, love opens doors. Love breaks down barriers. Love softens hearts. Love removes suspicion. As the Bible says, love never ends. The greatest of these is love. And I do think that in this season we're coming into, our love expressed in thousands of simple acts of kindness and generosity and hospitality will speak loudly and bring a transformation. So my question is, could we unleash a tsunami of love from our church into the world? Could we release a tsunami of love? We, we are allowed to speak here in the building. Could we release a tsunami, a tidal wave of love from our church into the world around us? Could we be super active in our gifts, our cards, our notes, our prayers, our offers of help? our acts of service. Could we pray every morning, Lord, show me how I can love my neighbor today. Show me how I can love my neighbor today. We all know we should love our neighbor, but Lord, how can I love my neighbor today? How can I love this neighbor? How can I love that neighbor? How can I love my neighbor at work? I think this really matters because as we come back together, we will all have to make fresh choices and fresh commitments. Hebrews 10.25 has never seemed more relevant. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some have become in the habit of doing, but rather encouraging one another. We must not let fatigue set in. I know these, these, these are easy things to say and maybe more difficult to apply, but we mustn't let fatigue set in. We mustn't get tricked into thinking Zoom is a substitute for gatherings. We mustn't let pandemic habits live too long. We mustn't think it doesn't matter if I'm all in or half in. It really matters. We mustn't compromise our theology of the gathered church. And I want us to come back Say, let's come back to worship with greater love for Jesus than ever before. Let us come back to fellowship with a deeper love for one another than ever before. 
and let us come back in our mission, or let's continue our mission with more love and compassion, a tsunami wave of love for our friends than ever before. And lastly, I believe this really matters at this time. And I've been thinking about this in these last couple of weeks. Because the Living Rock Church of today is very different to the Living Rock Church a few of us started 25 years ago. It's been a fantastic journey with amazing people, some of whom are with Jesus now. God has been so good. All our life, he's been faithful. And there are now many more places and many, many more people. But every generation must build on what's gone before. And I think the next two or three years could be our most exciting so far. And I want to lay down a challenge to us, to us, our present membership, our present leadership, and say, let our love for Jesus, for one another, and for the world, let's make sure it's fresher, stronger, more intense, than ever before. Let us lay down a love that becomes again our hallmark and enables God to continue to pour out his blessing upon us. Amen. Trust you are very encouraged this morning. I want to appeal to you not in the way that you can come into the front or anything like that, obviously. But I do want to appeal to you, and we could stand up in response to this. Say, those of, that are, those of us that are part of this church, that we're all in. We're all in. All in. All of us, all in. And that we could just say this morning, and I think I might have even made the same appeal last time I spoke. <laughs> do it most times. That you'd say, count me in. I also want to say to those that might be watching, if you've been kind of joining with us over these months, we'd love you to be in with us. And over these next few weeks, we're going to be running uh, more uh, groups together where we just talk about what it means to be part of this church. If you'd like to have more information on that, please do get in church. Please join in. So perhaps we could just respond now and I want to pray and we could stand together and say, Lord, count me in. Count me in as part of a tsunami of love. Count me in, Lord, in, in, in finding that, Lord, we measure up to your measure of your church, which is an expression of your love. Count us in, Lord. Lord, we stand to our feet and we thank you this morning that you make things simple. You want us to be a people of tremendous love, Lord, for you and for one another, for the worlds around us, the worlds we inhabit, the worlds you've placed us in. I want to pray that as we, as we come together and we say, Lord, we're in, Lord, you will do such a precious work amongst us that this present generation, Lord, will build on everything that's gone before. And Lord, thrive in this new season that you're bringing us into. Lord, we give you all the glory. 
You are wonderful, Lord. We give you praise and glory and honor this morning. Amen, amen, amen. Thanks for joining us today. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching.